podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Chris says, Christopher sorry, says, even though I think New Zealand are better than South Africa, do you think it might be harder for England to be as successful considering South Africa's spinners are better? Or do you think England will just look to bully spin? Those two overs from Patel at Lords freak New Zealand, and I can't quite believe they picked a part-time bowler for two games. Not sure South Africa will make the same mistake with Harma and Maharaj. Yeah, um, I think that's a very uh, interesting and fair way of looking at it. I mean, the big difference is that England aren't going to be as worried about the batting of South Africa as they probably were with New Zealand, which means that they might go just as hard against South Africa just because they think that worst case scenario, maybe they bumble their way to 250 and that might be enough against uh, South African batting as it currently stands. But yeah... It's brilliant that we're in a position where South Africa are so good with spinners. I don't think you can boss Harmer. I think he's a much, much better spinner than Ajaz Patel or, um, uh, you know, kind of any of the other um, spinning options that uh, New Zealand would have had available to them. So I think from that perspective, there's absolutely no doubt that um, I think South Africa are in a better position. And Maharaj, as the second spinner, probably doesn't play that much, uh, you know, unless the conditions uh, um, dictate it, I would assume. But again, very, you know, respected. Uh, you're not talking about someone like Ajaz Patel who can't land the ball on the spot. You're not talking about someone like Bracewell, who's a part-timer up until five minutes ago. Um, you're talking about proper test spinners in the case of Harmer and Maharaj. So it'll be interesting to see how England do play them. I'm assuming that's not... I don't think they were looking at bossing spin against New Zealand. I think they were looking at bossing the weakest link against New Zealand. That may not necessarily be spin in that particular, um, in that series. Lee says, do you think the way England have started to bat in test cricket is sustainable? I'm not convinced that it will be successful consistently, especially if pitches do a bit more or are slower and lower. Look, Lee, it, it certainly won't be consistent right across the board. Uh, I'm not sure you could bat that way in Guyana. I mean, no one's been able to do that in test matches. Not that many test matches are played in Guyana anymore. You probably wouldn't be able to do it on some of the UAE pitches. You probably wouldn't be able to do it, um, you know, on the fourth or fifth day uh, at somewhere like the Wacker or, you know, if Adelaide Oval starts to crack up or anywhere with cracks, um, you would struggle to play that way at times, uh, you know, in most countries for various different reasons. What's interesting is if they can find a method that kind of does that goes in both directions, which is that they have the ability to still put on 70 runs in, let's say, you know, 40 minutes of, of batting, even on a pitch that other people would struggle on, which might then change the way that teams are bowling. Um, you know, and that's, I think that's what they're looking at. I think McCullum has come out now and said, and if you look at McCullum's record, I, I think he strike rate in test cricket, 64, 65. He didn't do it all the time himself. I don't think he's expecting Bearstow Stokes, whether they bring in Brooks or uh, Harry Brook or um, Butler or, or who, are, or, you know, whoever at Livingston, for instance. I don't think they're expecting any of them to do it all the time. I think what they really want is the ability for it to be there, and maybe to do it in in short, sharp bursts. But you're right. I think the pitches. I think in this particular case, uh, the fact that the pitches didn't do anything and the balls got soft which is partly perhaps why the pitches didn't do anything, is huge, right? They got three pitches that didn't break up at the end for the fourth innings, which which is massive if you're going to be chasing those sorts of totals. They got bad selections from New Zealand. You know, there's a lot of other things there. I do think at a certain point, if you are, if, if we know what line and length for a test match spinner is and a test match seamer is, and players now are so good at hitting line and length in, T20 cricket and one day cricket. Is there a point where that line and length is no longer the normal thing that you bowl in test match cricket consistently? So you might bowl it when the conditions are in your favor, but you know, I mean, for instance, New Zealand never looked at wide Yorkers. 
right? Because it was a test match. Who bowls wide Yorkers in a test match? But realist, but if you look at how England were playing, th- that might be this case. So I've done a really good podcast with it, uh, with Tim Wigmore, which will be out on Wednesday or on Monday, I suppose, if you're on Patreon or Tuesday, whenever they come out on Patreon, um, uh, about this sort of thing. And, and, and that's whether we uh, – one thing I thought New Zealand specifically were a bit slow to do was just go to one day in T20 – methods if you start to do that i think a lot of the stuff that england did again even if they do get uh you know uh flat pitches is not quite as devastating as what we saw um in these particular series but the whole thing's really interesting i kind of hope that they keep doing it just because it, it's a you know such a fascinating way of playing cricket um so yeah let's hope they do it and assume that it won't work but if they if it does work it might change what test cricket is which is Great, uh, you know, the West Indies did that. Australia did that. Um, uh, you know, a- a- almost every time that uh, you know South Africa did it back in the early 1900s. Most of the times when people have changed test cricket, it's it's been fascinating over that next that next little period. Duncan says, "How does England destroying the Netherlands help them as an associate team?" I know that it kind of does somehow, but when they're getting beaten by record margin, it doesn't feel like it's really helping them develop. Is a Dutch person going to watch that and try and play cricket? Well, we talked about this before. We saw their players improving in the series in the way that they handled uh, top qu- quality batters. You know, if, if you're a Dutch player, probably the you know the best batters you're going to go up against are going to be people like probably Callum McLeod and George Munsey. Um, trying to think of some of the you know you might come off come up against you know Colin Ackerman or Roloff um, in the nets. Uh, who are some of the other, you know, really strong associate batters out there. Um, there aren't that many that play that often. And even when you, you know, when Netherlands play some of these teams, they won't always be playing against those players. Um, you know, they're not always available in, in those sorts of situations. There aren't that many top quality players. And, you know, I think Callum McLeod's a, a very skillful batter. I think George Munsey, um is, you know, an incredible hitter of the ball. They're not Joss Butler. <laughs> and so straight away, Duncan, the first thing is that they are learning uh, in a high-pressure environment that if you want to be a one-day international cricketer, you're going to have to bowl to Joss Butler, right? Um, they've already faced a lot of Rashid Khan. It's just that you haven't seen it. I think off the top of my head, the Dutch players average 16 or 17 against Rashid Khan, right? But you haven't seen that because England wasn't involved. When when I've talked to associate teams, they've actually said that the growth of that great Scottish top four that they've had um, and the um, Afghanistani bowling attack is one of the best things for associate cricket because it means you can actually start to face teams that have those kinds of obstacles before you get to the international level. There is no associate team that's ever going to have a batting lineup like England, though. So you have to play against them. Uh, so, yes, I did see their players improve. I can certainly see why they should be playing. I think Sandeep puts a comment here about how um, West Indies scored the World World Cup uh, ODI world record at that time against um, Sri Lanka, and you know in 1987. And we know that you know uh, uh, two World Cups later, Sri Lanka would win the World Cup. So you do learn, and you do get smashed in the face. And you know I think Sri Lanka were on. I'm trying to think, I think there was a couple of hidings that Sri Lanka had, even though they played some really good cricket in the early World Cups. And then you say, is a Dutch person going to watch that and want to play cricket? I don't know how much cricket you've seen um, in the Netherlands before this. Generally, Peter Boren said something really interesting uh, when he was commentating for us on TalkSport. He said, generally, when you go into a Dutch cricket game, he knows everyone there, (laughs) you know. You know, he knows th- these fans and this group and they're from this cricket club and all that. He went into that ground and he said there are a lot of Dutch people he'd never seen before. So not just the English there, but a lot of Dutch people he hadn't seen before. Partly that was just because there was more of them, right? The other thing is you're looking at, I don't know what the crowds were, three, four, five thousand people. The music was pumping. Um, you know, the cricket was entertaining, even if it wasn't always good uh, for Dutch cricket. You know, there was certainly some entertaining cricket. Are you telling me that a Dutch fan who's never been to a cricket game before goes into that environment and doesn't look around and go, there's something to this sport as balls are ending up in the forest? I just, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. Now, if you tell me that they may not support Dutch cricket because they think Dutch cricket is, is is no good, well, that's fair. But I thought the Dutch team got better and better. I mean, to be honest, partly just because they were able to pick better players towards the end of that. But I thought the Dutch team just got better and better in that um, in that series. And uh, I, I think it's better for their development. I think it's better for their finances. I think it's better for their fans. Really 
struggling to see how this is bad. And you're you're looking at it from this point of view. Uh, South Africa went to Ireland recently and and lost. Uh, Ireland went to West Indies recently and beat them. We know that a full strength Netherlands would probably in this in this run of games against the West Indies against Pakistan, against England, probably picks up a couple of wins um, if they had a full strength team. That's sadly not available to them. They're not that far away. This is They've got some very, very good players in, in this Dutch team. Unfortunately, their, their top order and their main seam bowlers were gutted uh, by injuries, by not being available, by you know all sorts of things that had happened to them, the county cricket system. Um, uh, but no, I, I find it very hard to, to... I mean, you could see it. I, I don't even think there's no stretch here. We literally saw their young off spinner get smarter um, during the series. Um, so no, I definitely, um, I, I definitely see that as an advantage. Aditya says, if you were to construct a test match bowling attack to take on a batting lineup made entirely of left-handers, I like this already, Aditya. Um, who would you pick? Ashwin and Broad are automatic selections. Yes, uh, Ashwin Broad. Uh, I suppose if you need another left-hander, Lion, uh, uh, sorry, another off-spinner, Lion is probably the other one who's probably bowled the most of them. Um, Shahina Freedy is a killer of left-handers. Then you've got, then you probably pick one of um, Roach or Saudi. Saudi's got a really good record against left-handers as well. Um, and, oh, um, um, uh, the Bangladesh off-spinner, um, uh, uh, Miraz, isn't it? Um, I think he's another one. Uh, that you know, and you might actually have him ahead of Lyon. Lyon's good against left-handers, and I think he averages mid to low twenties. Um, but I'm not sure if the Bangladeshi guy might have him beat. I haven't looked at that in a while. But South is one of the really, really interesting ones. Um, that isn't an automatic name. Um, uh, and Roach, I think Roach has slowed down a little bit against left-handers over the last couple of years, but he bossed them for so long. Um, so certainly he he would be in the list there. Uh. Left-handers in general don't like left-arm bowlers, I think, as well. Um, same as kind of everyone. Um, James says, besides the obvious of getting the decisions right, what are the uh, most common and distinguishing characteristics of the best umpires? Uh, I, I think with the, I, I think now we're getting more and more to a situation in test cricket or international cricket, I should say, where the umpires are getting really well-trained. There's a lot of like little shibboleths in umpiring that I don't know if fans know about, but you know, with LBWs and you know, if the ball goes up after it hits the pad, that usually means it's going too high. And if it goes down the leg side, it's going that way. All these sorts of little things that I think umpires had to work out on their own for a long time or was occasionally were passed down by senior umpires. Whereas I think now a lot of those things are, are helping umpires. So realistically now you want someone who can build good relationships with the players and that might sound a little bit weird, but I think the sort of the author, authoritarian sort of umpires, I, I don't think that was ever a very good system. Um, but I think more and more now, you you know, uh, there's so, you know, if you're an international umpire now, you're going to have to deal with people from so many different diverse backgrounds. And I think before what would happen is that the sort of Western umpires would sort of be friendly with the Western players and the Asian umpires would be friendly with the Asian players. And I think what we're seeing now is uh, umpires being really good at building relationships with players, even if they don't speak the same language, but building a relationship with them on the field. Um, I think calmness is a very important part of of being an umpire. Um, I also think the, uh, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but also a lot of the umpires who are very, very good have a encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of the laws. You know, we've seen some pretty big mistakes from umpires of recent times. You know, finding that sort of person who has a calm personality, who likes building... Uh, Maria Erasmus is such a perfect modern umpire because Maria Erasmus is the sort of person who, if he sees someone in cricket, he'll say hello. He's always building relationships with people. He's incredibly calm, and, and I think that's a really important part of, of being an umpire. And then on top of that, he knows the laws, uh, you know, very, very well. Those that's kind of the things that I would be looking for in most umpires, and I would say, um, Zayed, uh, Zayed Ahmed, sorry, uh, what are your thoughts on double headers for T20 internationals? Considering the size of squads and squeeze on calendars, do you think it's feasible? Uh, do you mean if you mean playing two um games in a row? I don't 
think that is ideal. Um, it's interesting because it works so well on finals day in England, I suppose, but I suppose there is a break for at least one of the teams there. Um, it, no, I, I just don't see it as being something that we need to do. I, what I, what I prefer is, um, is literally having, I don't know, what would you have Thursday, Friday, Saturday games or, or, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon game or something like that. Um, I think if you're going to play um, T20 internationals, I think you can certainly do them in those kinds of patterns. I don't think you need the full day off in the way that you do for a one-day game. Um, it, or, or maybe what you do is you, you go, you know, what, Friday, Saturday, um, to, you know, Monday game or whatever that may be, um, you know, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. But I I don't see the that much that we'd be getting out of playing back-to-back T20 games, unless I'm missing something obvious there. Rhubarb says, uh, what do you know about how spatial data from matches is collected, uh, uh, where the ball is pitched and wagon wheel? I assume the best data comes from Hawkeye, but I'm specifically curious about how Opta and Sports Radar get their data. I've seen some Opta soccer videos where they pay people to click boxes on a pitch map. Um, do you know if these companies do the same? Uh, yeah. So uh, Hawkeye does all, um, so for CrickViz, and for, um, and for the TV companies, I suppose, they get all their data via Hawkeye. Um, so that tracks the ball on the pitch. Everything else, as far as I'm aware at the moment, and happily be proved wrong, but I check in every now and again, uh, everything else is done manually. So where the ball goes, uh, even where the, the, the field is uh, run to, although that's not tracked as much, although I assume a few teams are doing that um, at the moment, uh, is all done manually with uh, literally. So when I sit next to Opta people, that's what they do. You know, they say the, um, uh, this is where the ball has gone um, from here um, and they literally just put it down on a map. And so it's a bit, you know, the dust the is not perfect. It's not far away. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been able to check what pitch map sort of stuff Opta do compared to Hawkeye. It's not as exact, and obviously it doesn't have the, uh, you know, the ball going up, down, left, right, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but as far as the pitch map goes, it's pretty close. Uh, it would be really easy to put up spatial tracking cameras. Um, they're not particularly expensive. I wonder if the size of a cricket ground might give them problems. Um, you know, it's a lot bigger than a baseball field, for instance, uh, or a soccer pitch. Um, but realistically, that's what we should do, and it's a massive step forward. I think I first wrote about it in 2017. Um, I talked to the big bash um, people and they were like, yeah, let's do it. I talked to the hundred people. They're like, yeah, let's do it. No one's done it. Uh, I've talked to IPL teams about it. It's, it's a no brainer for me. Um, you could learn so much with spatial tracking cameras, uh, which basically allow you to, you know, uh, th there was a really interesting one the other day where Kumar Sankakara was talking about Ben Folks, and Ben Folks has a fairly poor catch ratio in test cricket so far. And when Kumar Sankakara, you gotta remember Kumar Sankakara is, is friends with Ben Folks and probably instructed him on wiki keeping when he was at Surrey. So he's got skin in this game, but he was like, that just doesn't track for me. I've seen him. I think he's the best wiki keeper in the world, which I think he, he said publicly. He went and looked at all the drops. And what he said was a, a very high percentage of those drops were catches that other wiki keepers wouldn't have even got a glove on. What Ben Folks was doing was moving a lot further than a lot of modern wiki keepers do. And therefore he had a higher drop percentage than other people, but also was catching a lot of other balls quite easily that other wiki keepers would be dropping because they'd be diving for. We can track all that <laughs> with spatial tracking. We don't need Kumar Sangakara to go and, oh, you know, I mean, we always need Kumar Sangakara, but we don't necessarily need him to do that. And uh, we could track that with spatial tracking like that. We'd be able to tell if if he's reaching a ball a metre and a half away when most wiki keepers are not even getting balls a metre away from them. You know, what percentage of the time he's getting to inside edges that other wicket keepers aren't even moving to and it's just going for four on the inside of them. Uh, all those things are available to us um, in cricket. It's just that the teams haven't quite worked it out. There's a lot of technology that I think cricket teams should be investing in that they're not. Uh, Will says, can I claim to have scooped the O Morgan's retirement in last week's question? Yeah, I think that episode just went up on YouTube like after he retired. So, um uh, yeah, it was it was a decent question. I didn't see it coming, but I'm not surprised by it. If that if those two things make any sense, um, 
after I can't remember if it was at the IPL, but he was talk when he was talking about his form. I think he realizes that he sort of is, is a it's the best way of putting it, but like a, a spree batter. <laughs> you know, he gets his runs in in big chunks. Um, you know, it might be a year, year and a half where you can't dismiss him, and he makes an absolute ton of runs. And I think that there was a part of him that was thinking that this was just another blip, and that he would be able to work it out. And he might that might still be the case. So I certainly think that he probably gave himself as much as much chance as possible to make runs again. And when it didn't happen, perhaps he was thinking it wasn't worth it. Also, I remember talking to Graham Swan about the 2013 and then the 2013-14 Ashes. So there were two Ashes in the one year, the Mega Ashes, as no one else called the, called them other than I did. And and I remember talking to him and I said, if that was in 2014, 2015, you wouldn't have, you would have retired after 2013. He was like, yeah, definitely. But when you put all those tournaments together, sometimes, you know, and if you look at Owen Morgan, he would have looked at it and been like, oh, there's two World Cups close together. I think if the, in the last World Cup, if there hadn't have been another World Cup for another two years, I think Owen Morgan probably just goes, two years time, that's too far away. But I think he looked at it and was like, oh, it's not that far away. I can probably... And then it just hasn't, he hasn't been able to get back in, you know, and, and bat the way that he would like to bat. Uh, Will's got another idea for a format for a test cricket league. Two divisions of seven. Every side plays each home and away. Um, well, this is the original um, ICC one. So it's not another idea. <laughs> um, um, uh, match weeks between December and March, June and September. The gaps are used for T20 franchise and ICC competitions. Yeah, we're kind of already moving towards that, but yes. Uh, uh, the completion of the league takes the next block to allow for bigger sides to organize bilateral series. Yeah, I mean, so th this is more or less what they tried to get up what, four years ago at the ICC. Um, at that stage, the BCCI didn't want the window which is kind of ridiculous because the window kind of came anyway. Um, obviously, that's changed a little bit, and I think they're much more open to the window now. Um, the, the, the two divisions, uh, everyone plays each other, home and away is a problem for India-Pakistan. Uh, may not always be a problem, but certainly at the moment would be a bit of a problem there. Uh, but originally, that was what it was going to be, two divisions of seven, um, Sri Lanka, West Indies, maybe South Africa, maybe. I don't think New Zealand, but Sri Lanka and West Indies were not happy because they thought that, that it would be on the chopping block. Well, that's professional sport. You know, if you're not in the best seven teams, this is how it goes. Uh, I push it further. I think it should have been three divisions of seven. Uh, so you had the, you know, top 21 and two teams going up, two teams going down. They're not going to do that. I think that what the current one on the table, last time I talked to anyone, was um, two divisions of eight is, the, is what they're more looking at now. Again, just think Bangladesh, you know, West Indies, Sri Lanka are going to be against that um but you know they should get better at cricket that's the aim right like <laughs> that's what the that's what elite sport means um you know i've said this a lot of times south africa and australia and england shouldn't get to qualify for the elite version of test cricket because they played it in the 1800s they should get to qualify for it because they're still really good at it um and i think that's a huge problem within uh you know within our thinking of our sport it's this idea that once you're there, you're great. And it's like, well, once you're there, you might not be great anymore. And I think that one of the, I think one of the best things that happened to West Indies cricket of recent times was almost not qualifying for the World Cup. Really did wake up a lot of people in West Indies cricket. There's a lot of smart people there, you know, um, you know, some great coaches, and and you know, obviously Jimmy Adams is, is very good and. Um, you know, there Ricky Skerritt coming in as 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 chairman. I, I think a lot there's a, been an influx of smart people. Johnny Graves as a CEO, but I really think that scare was something that that's what you need, right? And your system, what the ICC have tried to do, certainly um, is something that that I, I think if we're organising a sport properly, that's what you would do. But we don't organise a sport properly. We play cricket. Ian says, does Morgan's retirement raise a realistic prospect of Alex Hales coming back into the England side um, or just another round of discussion about him before he doesn't get called up again? I don't think Morgan is the only reason that Hales is not in the England side. I know that's a fairly popular belief. Um, it's certainly not been something... I, I'm not saying Morgan didn't play a huge part in it. And 
there's a lot going on with Alex Hales and throughout his entire career that has not been made public. Um, you know, when you talk to players, Alex Hales has certainly upset a lot of people in cricket from administrators to coaches to players. As far as ball striking goes, there's no problem with him in this side. The only the only thing is at the moment, it's a you know, it's probably the good bloke rule at this point that is keeping him out. I'm not saying he's not a good bloke, um, but the good bloke rule is, or whatever they call it, the no dickhead policy um, from New Zealand rugby is when your team is that strong, you can afford to keep out someone who is seen as a problem. Now, I have an issue with this because, like, what's to stop them thinking I'm the dickhead now, right? Or you're the dickhead now, Ian. Not that I'm saying you're a dickhead, Ian. You may be a dickhead, Ian. I think I know you well enough to know you're not a dickhead, but let's just put that out there. And certainly I think, you know, that's where that sort of thing becomes a problem. But if you look at England English cricket and you look at what Phil Salt did the other day, uh, and you look at that, if you look at the T20 side specifically, they've probably got five guys who can open, right? And so I'm not saying maybe Alex Sales has a slight bump on some of those guys, but some of the others he doesn't. So I'm not expecting him to come back into the fold, but it would be interesting to see where he goes uh, from here. Because if he ends up, you know, dominating the PSL and dominating the IPL and, you know, do, you know, and maybe even leaving English cricket and dominating all those leagues and they don't win a bunch of tournaments, then maybe, the, you know, it becomes a bigger thing for Alex Ailes. Um, but I, I don't think Owen Morgan specifically leaving changes at, as much as other people might think. All right. Let's get to the room. Manam, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? I've got you, mate. What's your question? So I actually just read the news that um, Bumrah is going to be captaining India for the test match tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know your views on what position, maybe a bowler or a batter, an all-rounder, what position do you think is best suited to be a captain? A best suited... Yeah, yeah sorry. No, no, no. Best suited to become a captain is a number eight who doesn't bowl. So a specialist number eight batter, no pressure on them with the bat. Number one. I mean, if you if you're being honest, that's the best position. Every other position has, has compromises. Batters don't always really understand bowlers. For instance, they don't understand the physical limits of bowling. They also don't understand that if they put a fielder in a particular position, that will affect the bowler's line and length more. You know, put it this way: if you put four slips in, and you've only got two guys on the leg side, whether a and you keep keep telling them to bowl on off stump. They won't. They'll bowl outside of stump, right? Little things like that, I think a lot of batters don't quite get, or they don't understand, you know, the psychology of that, of running up hills, of foot marks and all these sorts of things. If you're a top order batter, I think it's I think that's a tough one. You're trying to dismiss the tail, but you're also you can't help but start to focus on your next job. Um, if you're a wicketkeeper, I think in some ways you're in the best position to understand the bowlers. You also have a very good understanding of batting because you probably have to, you know, at least be a specialist batter, at, if not at test level, but certainly before that. So you, you certainly understand that. But wicketkeeping is really hard on your body. Uh, and, you know, you have to concentrate very, very carefully. Um, and so that causes problems. Um, if you're a bowler, you have problems with over-bowling yourself when you bowl yourself. Um, uh, and in the field, again, a bit like an opening batter, you you know, there are times when you are probably thinking about your bowling to the detriment of your captaining. But realistically, I think that people who make good captains, and by that I mean someone who's probably fairly calm, someone who's able to think about multiple things at the same time, uh, someone who understands cricket, kind of before it's happening, not after it's happening. Uh, all those sorts of little micro skills that in, involve in captain, if you have them, it doesn't really matter what position you play in because you already have those skills. Um, you know, the ability to understand, what, you know, empathy, um, to understand someone's backstory, even if it's different to yours, um, to, to plan short-term and long-term all at the same time. All these sorts of things... That, that good captains probably possess naturally, um, it doesn't really matter what your job is at the end of the day. Because if, if, you, if I had a specialist number six bat who was a great, who, was, who didn't have any of those skills, but was a senior person, so you gave him the captaincy, and 
Uh, and then someone else is like, I don't know, an all-rounder who bats at number five but also has to bowl 25 overs to get him, right, and they're completely overworked, that person's probably still going to be a better captain than the specialist number six who's thinking about it more just because they don't have any of the natural instincts that are required. Um, so, so I think it's a bit of a nonsense question, not your question specifically, but as a – like if I'm looking at a cricket team, I'm, ne- I'm never thinking to myself – um, you know, who, which person, which I'm going to give it to a batter first and then a wicket keeper and then a bowler. If I'm working with a cricket team, I'm like, who's the person who's going to get the most out of the team off the field? Who's going to work the hardest to know the most on the field? And then who's going to read the game best and be a calm influence uh, when we, when we need one. I'm never, my last thing would be what's their role within the team. Thank you. Beautiful. Thanks for your question, mate. That was a really good one. Who's next? Keshu, if you're there. Yep. Hi, Jared. How are you? Long time. Very good. What's your question, mate? Yeah, so uh, Morgan got retired yesterday. So, you know, he won in the first 50 World Cup. So that got me thinking that the format in which, you know, he turned it around for England from 2015 until now. And now when you look at the domestic circuit in England, the same 50 over format is being sidelined for 100, right? This year, both of the competitions are going to be run along at the same time. So it's kind of a blessing in disguise for all those second level players who would get the chance to play the 50 over cup, but most of the first choice players would be there in the 100. So I want to know your views. Like, is it being treated fairly, this 50-over competition? The, basically, the format where England actually turned it around and brought back the viewers to wide ball game? Well, I'm not sure they brought the viewers back to white ball game. I'm not sure the ratings have gone up. The crowds for white ball games in England have always been pretty high, so I'm not sure England did that. The actual revolution of English cricket probably starts in 2016, before, the, so in the T20. It's the fact they won the World Cup is quite interesting. But if you look at it, it's the 2016 World Cup where they have the revolution. I mean, you know, Craig Brathwaite rolls his ankle or miss hits a ball um, and England win that World Cup. They were probably not quite as good as West Indies, I thought, in that tournament, but not far behind at all. So, you know, that revolution was a dual revolution. It wasn't just one-day cricket. You're basing that on the fact they won the, the World Cup. I think they've been just as good in in T20 cricket as they have been in, in Test cricket. Uh, sorry, in One Day cricket. Although I think they they changed One Day cricket more than they changed T20 cricket. So I think that's a that is worth mentioning. I thought that after the 2015 debacle and you know how they got exited early after Bangladesh loss. So right after that, that New Zealand series at home, the 50 over series. I thought that's where the turnaround started, which then seeped through to the T20 format. That's what I thought. Yeah, but but you keep talking about them like they're separate. (laughs) They're not separate. It was a white ball system, right? You can have a look at it. It goes right across both formats. In fact, they did a very similar thing in both formats. The only thing they probably didn't do no actually i would say it's almost identical they tried to bat as deep as possible they tried to have a fast bowler who could bang the ball into the pitch in the middle overs to try and control uh the run rate a little bit more and get some wickets for them and they unleashed their batters at the top but with guys in the middle so that's what i'm saying there's no separation between these two methods they did the exact same thing in one day cricket as they did in test in, in t20 cricket sorry and so the revolution is not a one-day revolution. It was a white ball revolution. Uh, very, that was, and they kept mentioning that over and over again. They never talked about having a one-day revolution or a T20 revolution. It was really about a white ball um, a system that would work for them. And they happen to have the same in both, probably just because of the players that I had available to them. Look, one-day cricket has been, I mean, how many, um, um, let's be really honest, how many domestic white ball uh, 50 over competitions in the world are taken seriously now. All right. So Australia bung theirs at the start of the year. It's not really a big tournament in places like the West Indies or South Africa. We don't talk much about any of them in India anymore. So it's kind of the same everywhere. And if the white ball skills work across those systems, um, there may be a time when there will be teams who take their their white ball domestic series very seriously um, and they might have an advantage over other teams. That's possible, I, su- I suppose. 
Well, I don't see many people in the world taking it that seriously. And as it currently stands, I don't see that affecting England. Maybe, maybe it will going forward, but I don't see that as affecting England. What about the players who get to play that tournament? I mean, at one hand, they'll be thinking, oh, come on, nobody's watching us. Everybody's watching the 100. So even if we do perform well, we don't really know that these performances will be awarded with a place in the team or something. You're talking about all domestic cricket when you say that. You could just say that about almost any domestic league in the world that's not a franchise T20 league. Right, Those sorts of players, if they smash it around in the 50-over competition and they're potential players for T20, then they'll go to the 100 or they'll go to leagues outside of that. If they're really good players who boss it in that white ball league but maybe aren't T20 players, then they'll get paid more by counties in the future because they'll bring counties success um, in, in that level of white ball cricket um, and they'll bring crowds in and it may also translate to red ball cricket. There's no, there's no downside to those to that from the player's perspective. It's helped a lot of us. So I think half the you know, Scottish team picked up contracts last year. I think some of the Dutch players might get some um, extra games as well. There'll be players who have slipped through county level who will get opportunities in those sorts of leagues as well. It's only a problem if players, and this is around the world, don't know how to play one-day cricket anymore. I think the best example of this was Nicholas Puran, who basically told me during the 2019 World Cup that he didn't know how to play in one-day cricket because he'd never played any of it. I think he might have played a couple of games for, uh, um, uh, for Trinidad and Tobago. I don't think he, he might not have even played any. Then he w played T20 cricket, and there were things he had to learn back. But most players have played 50-over cricket professionally in, you know, at one stage or another in their career and they get the concept of it. Um, I don't think we're going to get that many Nicholas Perrins, but maybe we will. But also, Nicholas Perrin absolutely was outstanding at the 2019 World Cup because he still had the skills that were needed um, to be able to play. So um, maybe he didn't have the experience and the knowledge, and he could have been even better if he had that, and he certainly um, suggested that. But he was still really good. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, thanks for your question, mate. Antis, you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you. What's your question? So I've always been curious about the Elvedad Beach. Before I had that, I would like, uh, always uh, wondered why the pitching outside the next time is uh, like that is what considered a bit. So when it's still on the other side, is why does the impact matter? Like if the ball is the uh, content of the ball of the fighters outside of them, but the ball is still growing to the terms, why should it not be considered up? That is what the world is watching behind that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think if we took that law away, what we might get is bowlers going even wider on the wicket and it would make it a lot harder for the umpires, I think, in general as well because you're now talking about balls that are hitting. I, I think my, my guess would be that that law partly exists to make it easier for the umpires. Um, if, you, you know, if you've ever watched someone who, you know, it, the, the, um, the LBWs that the umpires got the most wrong before DRS were when batters left the ball and the ball hit the pad way outside the stumps. Because think about it, especially if it's from a spinner, you're now having to guess the new line of the ball, right? So let, let's say you're Shane Moore and you're bowling around the wicket to a left-hander and he pads up and his legs miles outside the stumps. That's no longer straight on the way that we're looking at the ball. We now, you'd have a better view of that if you were standing at cover than you would if you the umpire. So I think that is probably part of it. And also, I think there's a, at the moment, there's a fairly good balance. We're probably in an era, and I haven't checked these numbers recently, we're probably in an era of a lot of LBWs at the moment. If you brought your change in, and you're not the only one to mention it, obviously, but if you brought your change in, I think there'd just be a lot more LBWs. And I'm not sure cricket needs a lot more LBWs at the moment. Um, if we were to bring in something, it should be adding to the game. I'm not specifically sure that would add to the game. Also, I think that umpires would just make a lot more errors um, in the, in those decisions, just because it's a lot easier to tell um, if if the ball you know hits inside the line. Make sense? Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for the question. Great question. Oren, are you there? Hi. Hey, mate. What's your question? If you had to write another cricket book, what would you mm -hmm. write it on right now? I might write it on baseball right now, Oren. If be honest, uh, <laughs> but that's just because I'm a bit obsessed right at the moment. Uh, one of the big cricket books I've always wanted to write. So I, I've been asked to write a few of recent times. There's a couple of players that I've talked to that I think played quite interesting careers that I think are that I think could help people inside and outside of cricket and inside and outside of professional sport. But it's very hard to get the player to be as honest as I would like them to be. 
So I've certainly had some conversations there. One of the great stories, Oren, that I've never uh, been able to tell is um, the story of the four leg spinners of South Africa. Um, so you've got you know, Reggie Swartz, um, uh, um, uh, Aubrey Faulkner. Oh, God, I can't remember the other two now. White, um, and I'm missing one, um, the other guy. <laughs> but their stories are incredible, um, and uh, they'll never probably be told uh, especially within South Africa because of the racial component, which is very fair. And, you know, I think you'd have to cover that in that story. But the four of them, you know, between wars and sickness and wives and alcoholism and bad fathers and all these different things they went through, I think it would be an incredible story um, to weave the four of them together. Uh, also, you know, what they did changed cricket. They made South Africa a legitimate team um, and, uh which helped us get more and more legitimate teams and leg spin. I mean, you know, you can track that all the way through to today, right? That's probably another one. I've got a really, really good story, which I I don't know if it's a book yet, but I've been working on for some time, which is uh, an incredible story, which involves crime and cricket, uh, which I would love to write. There's another one. Um, uh, maybe it's not a book, although it might be, um, about a young um, a Tamil player who took his own life, um, who which I would love to write about um, and, and we'll hopefully get around to finishing that um, one day. I'm trying to think. And then, you know, I, I think Cricket 2.0 was really good. So uh, Tim originally wanted to write that with me and then ended up with Freddie, which probably worked better for the book. Um, but there's still, I think there's still some untold stories about how much cricket has changed over the last couple of years. And I think that's a really, really nice book, but I, I'd like to do a different kind of version on, on a similar sort of thing. Um, and then I think the other, the other two books for me would probably be The Rise of Afghanistan Cricket and The Rise of Women's Cricket. Um, I'll be honest, having said all of this, I don't think I'm going to write another book for a while. Um, but, but I think those are the other ones. Um, that would be really, really interesting. I think with Afghanistan, it might be a bit tricky to get back there. Um, uh, I was asked um, uh, to go back there uh, a couple of times, but it's never quite worked out. And, um, you know, it's it's not an easy uh, trip for, you know, a very pale-skinned dude to make. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I think those are the main ones. But um, thanks for the question. What else we got here? Akila, are you there? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you. What's your question? Yeah, you mentioned before that uh, pre-World War II first-class cricket was quite well-known. I was just wondering about the Cambridge-Oxford University cricket. The reason I ask is that G.H. Uh, Hardy, a famous mathematician, studied at Cambridge, and uh, he, was, he was a big cricket fan. And uh, there was a, a quote where on his deathbed, his sister read him the history of Cambridge University cricket, you know, whilst he, he was dying. So I have a friend who goes to Cambridge and plays cricket. He, he doesn't care about the history of you know, who, what games are played there, or why, why, why would you? So I was just wondering that at some point, was it big, you know, similar to how Cambridge Oxford rowing is big now? Was it that big? Yeah, I'm wondering if it was as big as the rowing. It's certainly not as big as the rowing is now, if that makes sense. And what I mean is, you know, the rowing has gone on to be, a mo you know, an international event, hasn't it? Americans watch the rowing, don't really understand it, but, you know, it gets broadcast around the world. I don't think the... Oxford Cambridge cricket was that big. There's been some really good cricketers come through there, though. And so there was certainly a time when it was given more prominence. I would say it was probably more along the lines of the Eaton Harrow game. Maybe, I don't think it ever quite got to that level. Um, you know, for those who don't know, Eaton Harrow um, played, uh, played at Lords for, I don't know, 170 years, maybe. <laughs> and Middlesex women never got to play at Lords. There's a I was going to say a fun fact. That's probably an unfun fact, isn't it? I think if you look at the history of cricket, certainly the Eton Harrow game is talked about a lot more than the um, Oxford-Cambridge uh, rivalry. But I think because a lot of good cricketers still came out of, um, you know, those schools and a lot of those cricketers then go on to be media personalities, it's probably always had had a moment um uh, you know, I mean, these days, I mean, Fenner's is still a beautiful cricket ground that I can't imagine you getting, you know, a couple of thousand people in for the Oxford-Cambridge game, whereas I think probably back in the old days, that was obviously something that was far more common. But I don't think you would have got 30,000 in. I, I think if it was that big a game, I think the best way of putting it, um, 
Aquila is that if it was that big a game, it would have been played at Lords consistently. And I think they have played those games at Lords. Um, I'm trying to think. There's, I think around the late 1800s, and I can't remember that. Might have been Ranji comes out of Cambridge. I think that's right. And I think there was a few really good players on a couple of teams. I think they've had some good teams out of Cambridge and Oxford at times. I think I'm trying to think if Jack Brooks played for um, Oxford recently. I think I'm trying to think if he was one of them. Um, but there's been some pretty good players have come for, through that that setup at times. And I think perhaps when they had better players, there was certainly a little bit more hype for it. But I think when you read, this is my opinion. So you know there could be an English cricket expert out there who disagrees with me. But I think when you read back cricket history, there is absolutely no doubt that Eaton Harrow is a very, very massive game. You know, gentlemen versus players is a very, very massive game. Oxford versus Cambridge doesn't come across at that same level. Um, maybe the level below that. All right. Thanks for answering the question. No worries. Thanks for the question. Oh, Keshul back. Yep. Sorry. I, uh, last time my app crashed, I've been between. That's all right. Uh, I just had uh, uh, one more question to ask. Uh, recently, I read somewhere that in the Ranji Trophy final, uh, there was some decision which could have been, you know, it was sort of a howler which could have been avoided with DRS. And then uh, somebody asked some BC official apparently why was there no DRS. And they said, uh, and that's that's what I read. They said that uh, we thought it was way too expensive to be brought in just for the final. So, I mean, if BCCI will talk like that, who's making in billions, so <laughs> what's your comment on that? Because even this is not true, if if this news is not true, BCCI can afford to have DRS in every domestic game, right? The kind of money they're making. They could. I See, I don't think that they need to. I don't think all domestic games need DRS. But they could, and I don't think they should bring it in for DRS. I think they should bring it in so they have more Hawkeye data on all of their players. That's why I would bring it in. I would literally, I, I, you know, I would say uh, publicly, we're going to make DRS, but privately I'd be saying to everyone, we now are going to get the exact speeds of all these bowlers. Uh, we're going to get, you know, whether this, this guy can swing the old ball, swing the new ball, reverse swing, how this person spins it, all those sorts of things. Um, it, that sounds, uh, I'd be surprised. I can't think of, I mean, they don't use DRS in county cricket and I, don't think they use it for Sheffield Shield finals. So I think they're thinking about it in a very old way, which is, well, it's never needed it before. And just because this game is, you know, broadcast in a better way than our normal games are broadcast, we don't particularly need it. But if I was working for, you know, if, you know, if, 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 um, if I was sending an email to Royal Dravid, I'd be saying, if you got DRS onto all these things, think about how much more information you would have on all your first class players. Um, which is also what I'd be telling, you know, counter cricket. Now it is expensive. Um, I do think there are cheaper ways of doing it, but I think Hawkeye specifically is quite an expensive model. Um, you also then need to think about, I think, is that the Women's World Cup in 2017, they, the ICC decided not to have DRS and they didn't have the runout cameras. So I don't know what we call those, the third umpire runouts. So we, you know, and, and a lot of the associate cricket, I think the West Indies Scotland game is what that's probably a multi million dollar game for West Indies and Scotland before the 2019 World Cup. And Richie Barrington gets done on an LB, I think it was Richie Barrington, got done on an LBW, you know, just before the rain came down. You're talking about a game that could cost Scotland between two and $5 million, right? Maybe more than that when you think about, you know, what might happen into the future. Um, and it's not being decided by technology that the ICC can afford. So I think a lot of it is there is a belief that because it is expensive and it is expensive, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, it's not a cheap system. Because of that, that, you know, when they can cut corners, they do cut corners. But as I've said, from a development tool, I think it's the best thing that you could tell any of these players. Um, uh, you know, the information that the coaches, the selectors, uh, you know, general managers, directors of cricket, all these people could could use that sort of information. So I'd be selling it more as that. Even if it's expensive and uh, if, if that news article was true, does that make you wonder where all the goddamn money is going actually? I've said that on this podcast about 10 times. 
I don't understand where the money from the BCCI goes. I don't see it on the field. I don't see it in academies. I don't see it in women's cricket development. I don't see it in men's cricket development. Where's the money going? They seem to make a lot of money and it disappears. I don't see that because of this DRS thing. I think this is more of an old school of thing of, like, oh, well, that's a first class game. And, you know, yeah, it's a final and we've got better cameras, but we don't need DRS. But as a general rule, I don't understand where all the BCCI money goes. Um, they don't seem to have a hundred more staff or, you know, t- or, 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 or 10,000 more staff than um, other cricket boards. They don't have the best cricket facilities in the world. They don't have the best stadiums in the world. I don't understand where all this money is going, right? So, yes, as a general rule, definitely. Even the the TV rights went for, I think, uh, more than uh, English Premier League, but uh, the highest paid cricketer in IPL probably makes one-tenth of what people make in EPL. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in basketball, I think, is it 47 or 49% of the revenue goes to the players, which is a similar system to what Cricket Australia has with their players, I think. Although I might have come down in, in that last one. I haven't, I haven't looked at that for a while. Is, is that right? Was it 25%? Uh, I've forgotten the number now. But the, they, they based it on that. You know, Indian cricketers aren't making 25% of what the BCCI makes. And yet they're the ones making it for them. So the players aren't getting played, uh, paid. Um, it's not a professional system as it should be. Uh, you could put a state-of-the-art cricket academy, well, I would say one per state. You could probably put two or three per state. You could professionalise women's cricket in a heartbeat in a way that no one else would ever be. You know, Indian women could be the best cricket team in the world for like 50 years because of what you could do with the BCCI money. There's, there's you know... We talked about spatial cameras before. They could have Hawkeye, a proper camera to work out the revolutions on the ball uh, and the path of the ball. Hawkeye, that spatial tracking in the field for every top-level cricket ground in India, which means that they would be learning stuff that other cricket teams might take 20 years to learn about fielding positions, about revolutions, about the grips of balls, uh, all these sorts of things. Um, again, it's not actually that expensive for them. Would be for any other board, but for them, we're not talking about a lot. They could be, you know, that they could be the NASA of cricket. Um, and I don't see how anyone else would ever get anywhere near them. And I don't know where the money goes. I just don't, I don't see it being spent on cricket. Right. They don't have open accounts. They, you know, they probably, I, I think all cricket boards really in the world should, we should be knowing where the money goes. We make this money for them, right? We're not just consumers because this is not just a product. This is not us buying a can of Coca-Cola, right? These are, these are bodies that are run for the betterment of sport in that country. Uh, we should know a lot more about where the money is going. Have a, have a look at, you know, the, the, the furor about the England um, administrators getting paid bonuses, right? I think there's a lot of people in, in other cricket countries doing pretty well um, and that we don't know that they're getting bonuses. Uh, we should know what the CEO is being paid. Uh, you know, we, we know in some cases, we know what the players get paid, right? And we don't know what any of the administrators or coaches get paid. How is that okay? This isn't just an Indian thing. This is a lot of cricket boards getting away with absolute nonsense. And I think the ICC tried to open this up and a lot of the cricket boards went, of course, we're not going to tell you. And there's probably a reason, right? Um, You know, well, there was a very, very notable deal done with West Indies cricket. I know whenever it was four or five years ago where they suddenly got a lot more money out of sponsorship than they used to get out of sponsorship. And I think that the thought within cricket was uh, the sponsors suddenly got more money or has something else happened? And by something else happened, I don't even know what that means. Was it bad business? Was there corruption? Was there, um, was it doing sponsorship deals for you? For, we have no idea, right? Because we, we can't, there's no transparency in all of this. And it's not, this is not an Indian problem. This goes right across the game. And I think, too many decisions are made and we don't know where the money goes. This is not, you know, and if an IPL team doesn't want to tell us what they're doing with their money, they are a private entity. These are not private entities, right? Some of them have tax breaks. They have all sorts of advantages. Some of them get government money. 
So they don't just get money off us, the cricket fans. They also get money from the government. Some of them get land from the government. Yeah, all these sorts of things. And we don't know what happens with any of this money. And I don't think it's acceptable. And it's never been acceptable. It's just that, you know, in the old days, it was run by gentlemen and we had to accept their word, except for the fact that we knew the old gentlemen were absolute grifters and grafters. And, you know, uh, you know, there's a reason why Kerry Packer found it so easy um, to do what he did. <laughs> it's because he paid the players and the players weren't being paid. You know, the money back in those days was not going in the right direction. And um, I've got no problem with... So So a few years ago, the ICC, um, they took out every chairman. I think it was it must have been for the 2000th test at Lords. They took out all the chairmen um, of all the boards, of all the major boards, uh, first class, uh, to, to attend the test. If you're a chairman of a cricket board and the ICC wants to pay for that, I'm okay with it. My understanding was, and I could be wrong here, that the families also went out. Now, the only reason we found out about that is because it was leaked by one of the chairman, I think, or someone involved in one of the boards. The ICC shouldn't be spending money like that. If someone wants, if someone wants to go to the test match and they want to stay in the hotel, that's fine. If there's a deal to be made, you know, I do deals sometimes with, with cricket boards, with, with a lot of my employers, um, and this includes Cricket Scotland. Um, where I wanted my family to go out. But Cricket Scotland didn't spend any more money on that, but what they did do was make sure that I had a room that was of a size where I could get that. Like, that's a fair thing to do for your, your uh, you know, employees and all that sort of stuff. But I think it would be very fair uh, for Cricket Scotland to say, um, uh, well, anyone, who, any Scottish person should know if my family members are getting paid for by, by Cricket Scotland. And that goes all the way up to these boards that actually have billions and billions of dollars. And we don't know anything. And if that's part of it, that's fine, but make it public. Okay, so the Australian cricket team goes out um, and they travel and they get extra big rooms if they have a family. That seems like a fairly thing, a, a, a fair thing, but we should, we should be able to know that that is part of their employment rights. But we should also know if the administrators are doing that and the coaches are doing that and uh, the officials are doing that. We should know where all the dollars are being spent. And at the moment, we know the big name things and we don't know anything else. So the entire system is shithouse, is the best way do to put it. Uh, so just the last one. Do you think uh, uh, these things are subjected to a right to information like anybody could put in a petition in a court and they can actually uh, acquire all this information? I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I would say no, just based on the fact that no one's done it. Um, but I don't know. Cricket boards are so different from country to country as well, like, you know, as the laws are um, and the way these things are set up. So I personally um, don't really, I, I wouldn't know that, but I would say in some countries you would be able to find out more information. Um, I think uh, I think in Australia, maybe New Zealand, uh, the finances are quite uh, clear. I, th well, I, think we, we, I think we know in Ireland might be another one that what's quite clear where the money is going. Um, it doesn't feel like there are that many other cricket boards that are out there that are doing a similar thing that I'm aware of. Um, you know, there's so many cr cricket boards. Uh, there might be some that are doing um, slight things like that, but it might be a case in certain countries we can get more information out there. Um, and then, but then you also need, you know, it would probably take more than a cricket writer to be able to go through those sorts of documents because those are not the sorts of things that we generally as cricket writers would, would have to do. And, you know, when I've been given documents, I kind of have to find experts um, to have a look at them myself. So, you know, it might be the case that it's possible in some countries, but the cricket writers are like, I don't, I've seen them and it didn't make any more sense to me than it did beforehand. I, I don't, I can't answer that one. Uh, thanks so much for your question though, mate. Um, but yeah, as, as, as I was saying, we should know where the money is being spent in cricket. Um, far more than I think we currently do. And uh, sadly, I don't think that's, well, I don't think it's going to change in the short term. I don't think there's any cricket boards looking to do that. Uh, but huge thanks to everyone this week for all their questions. Some really great ones in, in the room there. Obviously, Patreon questions really great. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can, or on Buy Me A Coffee. I've got on my um, Bodyline t-shirt. Uh, Currently running through the crease here after a wicket, uh, which is awesome. Um, so you can certainly help them out. Uh, we've got, I think we've had some LinkedIn ads. So big uh, thanks to LinkedIn, obviously to Manscaped, 
you can put the code red inca all one word in and get a discount there but just huge thanks to everyone who came on again talk to you again next week Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics.